0: The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible, in part, by our signature partner, Amgen. Committed to transforming new ideas and discoveries into medicines for patients with serious illness.
1: By the mid-1970s, the war on cancer was in full swing. As we enter
2: century three of American life.
1: The National Cancer Act, signed by President Richard Nixon in 1971, had authorized an infusion of cash and political will into research for a cure. TV ads featuring celebrities like Ali McGraw called on the public to do their part.
3: Right now, there are life-saving research projects being held up.
4: Do you know why? Money. Don't wait. Please. Please. Give now.
1: More and more people were actually talking about cancer and surviving it. My name's Mike. I'm 19 and I'm alive. I'm alive because of a new kind of treatment I've been receiving since I came down with leukemia six years ago. Ads showed cancer survivors riding motorcycles and getting married. Thanks to your help, we can save almost half the people who get cancer. Don't quit on us now. We're almost halfway there. Early detection and treatment were improving. Why? Well, not just because of the money. It was also due to the work of brave people like Rose Kushner, a journalist and breast cancer survivor, and Bernie Fisher, a doctor who pushed back against the status quo. Both were featured in our first episode. So by the mid-70s, we're coming out of the bad old days when your doctor might not even tell you if you had cancer. But now, new concerns arise. Once you leave the hospital, how do you go back to a society that doesn't really know what to do with you?
5: I think a lot of people feel like cancer is catching and
6: they treat you like you're a leper.
1: After treatment, cancer survivors faced a slew of physical and social side effects. A diagnosis could cost you your job, your insurance, and your community. But at the time, there weren't a lot of places to turn to for support. And after sometimes excruciating treatment, the view from plenty of cancer doctors was, you're lucky enough to be alive. So what more could you ask for? But attitudes were starting to change. The idea of accepting whatever care you were offered without questioning it was shifting. You can hear it in this radio interview with a cancer survivor recorded in 1977.
5: I have a right to know what's happening to my body. I have a right to participate in making the decision about how I want to live and how I want to die uh, is part of a whole human rights movement
1: the paternalistic attitudes surrounding cancer treatment touched nearly every element of healthcare and American society. But in the cultural upheaval of the 1960s and 70s, many Americans rose up to fight this. From women's health activists who protested an all-male Senate hearing on the birth control pill. We
7: want to have some control over
6: the decisions that affect uh, our
7: All right, parents. will you please sit down or be removed from no, the... No, we are going
6: to sit down.
1: ...to disability rights advocates who staged sit-ins in federal buildings across the country demanding legislation to end discrimination. The Black Panthers showed up to support the protesters, bringing needed medication and water. They were concerned about health issues, too, and the structural racism that was making people in their communities sick. Up
4: to this day in the Black community, you
5: have doctors there who are more concerned with private wealth rather than public health.
1: Black Americans diagnosed with cancer were more likely to die than whites. To revolutionize health care, the Panthers opened free clinics and offered breast cancer screenings.
5: And the federal government, with all this wealth and resources,
1: is not doing anything to attack the problem of inadequate health care in the United States of America. Meanwhile, in New York, a group of radical Puerto Rican activists called the Young Lords were fed up with deplorable conditions at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx.
4: We have seen children get lead poisoning while hospitalized at Lincoln Hospital.
1: I mean, there was a joke in the neighborhood that if you got stabbed on this side of the street, crawl over to the other side so the ambulance wouldn't take you to Lincoln. Some of the doctors had come to Lincoln
8: determined to change the system from within. A bunch of young doctors, there were about 40 of us in all, and we came to call ourselves the Collective, the Lincoln Collective.
1: The Young Lords and Lincoln Collective came together and took over the hospital for 12 hours to draw attention to the dire needs. The doctors helped us get in. It was really like a military maneuver. Still, there was some tension between these young, mostly white doctors and the majority
8: black and Hispanic population the hospital served. Very often we go like an invading army into the countryside, learning nothing or knowing nothing of the people we care for. Community organizers wanted people from the community, not doctors or administrators,
1: to have more control over the care they received. While some activists were advocating for better health care in the streets, opening up community clinics and trying to revolutionize medicine from the inside, others were starting to form grassroots mutual aid groups across America. People who had been diagnosed with cancer and other diseases gathered who share information and resources.
3: Cancer survivors are fighting back.
1: One of these early organizations had an incredible acronym.
3: CHUMS, Cancer Hopefuls, United
4: for Mutual Support. Cancer is beatable, cancer is conquerable. and cancer is curable.
1: Local hotlines for cancer survivors had also started popping up around the country. Other cancer survivors connected through snail mail, which at the time was just called mail. Many of these groups had similar goals, but in the pre-internet era, their reach was limited. They were isolated to their geographic region. You had to hear about them through word of mouth, or by spotting a classified ad in the paper, or a flyer on a bulletin board. They weren't a political force, and there was no organized national cancer survivor movement. But that was about to change. From Offscript Media, my name is Matthew Zachary, and this is The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, a series about the people, not the disease. Next, the growing number of cancer alumni begin to organize.
2: Right, so we really ought to have an alumni association. We're a huge alumni group, (laughs) and yet at that point, nobody had really thought to uh, organize or even develop the identity.
1: We'll be back after a quick break. Stick with us.
0: Additional support for the Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible by the following partners. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Senkyo, Merck, CGen, Takeda, Pharmacyclics, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen. Learn more about these supporters at CancerMavericks.com.
1: Organizing a national coalition for cancer survivors before the internet was no easy task. Not that it's that easy today, but back then, you couldn't just Google cancer groups near me. But in the mid-1980s, two survivors with a shared vision found each other and sparked a national movement. Our producer, Susie Armitage, has that story.
7: Fitzhugh Mullen was a young doctor from New York, steeped in the radical politics of the 60s and 70s. In medical school, he'd gone to Mississippi to volunteer with the Civil Rights Movement. Remember those doctors working with the young lords to occupy Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx? He was one of them. Fitzhugh went on to write a book about these experiences called White Coat, Clenched Fist, The Political Education of an American Physician. He spoke to the legendary journalist Studs Terkel about it in 1977.
8: As soon as I got to medical school, I found myself rapidly being politicized. I found myself saying, why am I here? What am I doing? Why am I going to this anatomy lab when, you know, young people are making history and changing the country? And as a kind of compromise, uh, I decided to go south that summer and see if I could find some reason that uh, would keep me in medicine. And... um, uh, ironically, I found more in Mississippi to keep me in medicine than I found in uh, in the labs and the cadaver and all the dogs we dissected put together.
7: Fitz, as his friends and family called him, was an extrovert, with a passionate drive to make the world a better place. He'd gone into medicine to get closer to people, which made it difficult to deal with losing them.
8: Un- unhappily, many of your patients do die. But it's not discussed much in medical school. And it's assumed that you simply... Uh, minister to that individual scientifically until the end, and I found it to be uh, a far richer, trickier, and more troublesome interchange than simply making the announcement, I'm sorry so-and-so has died, and uh, then going on to the next patient.
7: Fitz sounds calm here, young and healthy, but when this conversation was recorded, he had just faced the prospect of his own death an unexpected cancer diagnosis at the age of 32. He was married with a three-year-old daughter and serving in the National Public Health Service in Santa Fe, New Mexico. For the last few months, he'd been waking up with chest pains, and he had a persistent cough. Fitz had the technician take an x-ray of his chest just to make sure everything was okay. When he saw the film, he immediately knew something was wrong. There, in his right lung, was a white mass that he'd later describe as a hazy cauliflower. He took the x-ray over to the radiologist. It
2: was only when I told them it was my chest x-ray and saw their demeanor radically change and them started to pull and choose their words very carefully with a clear kind of shudder in their voices. Did the fear get to me that, oh my God, this was me and this was cancer?
7: Soon, Fitz was on the operating table so doctors could get a better look inside his chest and see how far the cancer had spread. But then, things went very, very wrong. During the biopsy, the doctors accidentally cut a vein and it began to bleed uncontrollably. They performed an emergency procedure to split his chest open and save his life. Once he was stable, they got around 60% of the tumor. But Fitz's fight was far from over. Over the next two years, he went through chemotherapy and radiation. Then they had to remove his sternum to address an infection from the initial emergency surgery. When it was all over, the cancer didn't recur, but all the treatment left significant scars. Here's his daughter, Megan. He was missing part of his breastbone, so you could see his heart beating. Because they had grafted skin onto there, uh, and then with a, by literally sewing his arm to his chest, created blood flow so that he, he could live. Gradually, Fitz recovered and got back to work. He actually finished writing White Coat, Clenched Fist, the memoir of his activism as a young doctor, while healing from cancer treatment. That's when he sat down for that interview with Studs Terkel. And after taking a few years to process his experiences with cancer treatment, he decided to write about that too. Published in 1982, the new book was called Vital Signs, A Young Doctor's Struggle with Cancer. It was one of the first major memoirs about cancer. He wrote beautifully about the anger he felt getting cancer so young, but also about the joys of surviving it, being able to eat Chinese food again after radiation burned his esophagus, playing with Megan— celebrating the birth of Caitlin, who'd been conceived right before he began treatment, and adopting their brother Jason a few years later. The book got a lot of buzz. Here's Caitlin. He did a, like a late-night talk show in New York City, and he took me for this trip, and we stayed in a hotel in New York, and then there, a limo came and picked us up and took us to the studio. And I thought that I was so special that, you know, my dad had written this book and I also felt important because there is a, a chapter in the book named after me. And, you know, have, having a daughter born as a symbol of life was something really important to him. Fitz also traveled the country to speak with cancer organizations and support groups. And a few years after Vital Signs came out in 1985, he wrote an essay for the New England Journal of Medicine called Seasons of Survival. It helped popularize the term cancer survivor as opposed to cancer patient or everyone's favorite cancer victim. He talked about what prompted the piece in a 2004 interview with NPR.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and what became increasingly apparent was that, uh, as for most everybody with cancer, the, the binary notion of either death or cure, which we kind of start with, isn't the reality. The reality is kind of a, a, a DMZ, a kind of purgatory, uh, in which for a long time it may not be clear exactly the outcome, with lots of uh, complicating issues that nobody really focused on.
7: In the essay, Fitz outlined three phases or seasons of survival. First, the acute survival phase, when you've just been diagnosed or you're in treatment and fighting for your life. Then, extended survival, where you're in remission or have finished the initial course of treatment and are learning to live with new physical limitations and anxiety that the cancer will return. And finally, permanent survival, or the closest thing to a cure, when the chance of recurrence is small, but you're still affected in physical, mental, emotional, and other ways. Fitz also highlighted the fact that doctors weren't prepared to help survivors deal with everything that comes after, quote-unquote, beating cancer. He wrote, It is as if we have invented sophisticated techniques to save people from drowning, but once they've been pulled from the water, we leave them on the dock to cough and splutter on their own in the belief that we have done everything we can." His words resonated with readers all across the United States. One of them was Catherine Logan, a survivor of cervical cancer, living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like Fitz, she'd worked for the Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi and served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Puerto Rico. She was the daughter of a Presbyterian minister, and their family had hosted refugees. Catherine had a deep commitment to social justice and didn't hesitate to speak up for what she thought was right. Her brother John put it this way.
4: She's always, she was always a fireball. She was always passionate and stuff.
7: After doing social work and community organizing in Chicago, Catherine had been drawn west.
6: She drove her Volkswagen Beetle from Illinois Albuquerque, but she detoured uh, to visit me and say, hello, I'm now going to be living in Albuquerque because I'm looking for myself and that's where I'm going to look.
7: She settled there and started a business making turquoise jewelry. Then, in her 30s, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. After her treatment, which was radiation and a full hysterectomy, Catherine felt isolated. She needed to talk to someone else who'd been through cancer. Someone who understood what it was like to deal with the side effects and difficult emotions. But that was hard to find. Catherine's counselor actually referred her to a support group for divorced people. Never mind that she wasn't divorced, it just happened to be one of the only groups in town for people going through difficult transitions. Then, in 1982, Catherine's oncologist made an introduction that would change her
3: life and the lives of countless other survivors. The doctor came running over and said, you must meet Catherine. She's my patient. Audrey Wilson
7: was a neighbor of Catherine's oncologist, and she'd been recently diagnosed with breast cancer. She needed to talk just as much as Catherine did. She'd been treated like she was contagious
3: or even crazy. I was asked to use paper plates, not use the restroom. A very honored scientist said, well, you don't look too bad for dying. And another very educated woman said, you know, cancer is all psychological.
7: The two instantly hit it off. Together, along with three other women survivors in Albuquerque, they started a group called Living Through Cancer. It was a space to talk about anything and everything people experienced after diagnosis. Catherine closed her jewelry shop to run the organization full-time. It was a grassroots effort. Their first office was just an enclosed porch No water, no heat. They held workshops on nutrition, exercise, and self-care. They had potlucks where survivors could have fun and find community. And they ran support groups where people could share things
3: they didn't feel comfortable telling anybody else. These people in the community came with dark glasses, hats, uh, trench coat-type things, and would talk in a different voice than they really had in case anybody would recognize it. I was warned, don't tell anybody. Or you'll lose your job and your family. I mean, this
4: is the thinking at that point. I'm pretty sure that I found a listing in the newspaper. That's Beth Pinkerton. She came to one of Living Through
7: Cancer support groups after a close relative was diagnosed.
4: It was hard to wrap my brain around that this was happening and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what it was going to mean. Going to the group helped Beth
7: process those feelings. Catherine was the facilitator.
4: She made sure that there was space for people to talk and people didn't dominate the conversation. She really had a vision of what could be and that cancer didn't have to be the end of the line. It didn't have to be the thing that defined you. Catherine felt that if you are facing cancer you are the expert of your own experience, and that is valuable, and it's something to share with others.
7: As a group of women without formal medical training, they also faced some pushback. Here's Audrey again.
3: Well, we were just kooks. Who's going to talk about cancer? Just go home and be quiet, because we were doing such outrageous things. We were going outside the medical community, outside our doctors, and talking to one another. And then my oncologist, after a time, uh, wrote a letter to the medical community, just acknowledging it was a valuable service to some patients, any questions they could call her. All the while, Catherine was networking from her makeshift desk on the porch, looking for allies. She was reaching out to everybody she knew, and from one person, she would get another list of contacts, and she would just quietly communicate with them, saying, we are starting this organization. What could you tell us? What do you think we should be doing? She would just inquire of them and their knowledge and their suggestions. And her brilliant mind knew how to comb through those. Catherine was already thinking beyond Albuquerque. So when she read Fitz's
7: Seasons of Survival essay, one of the lines jumped out at her.
2: We really ought to have an alumni association. We're a a huge alumni group.
7: (laughs) (laughs) A national alumni association to connect cancer survivors and all the support groups and organizations that were popping up around the country. Catherine knew that if organizations like hers got together, they could expand their impact, share best practices for peer support, and push for changes to the law that would really improve life for cancer survivors. So she wrote to Fitz about the work she was doing with living through cancer and starting that Cancer Alumni Association. Let's do it, she said. She didn't hear back at first but Catherine wasn't about to let go of the idea. She followed up in person at one of Fitz's speaking events and eventually she got him on board. With his contacts as a respected doctor and author and her passion and perseverance, they made a really powerful team. So it was decided. They would convene the first meeting of the United States Cancer Alumni Association and start a national movement, truly the first of its kind. Catherine sent letters to 83 people and organizations working with cancer survivors to see if they wanted to join a national coalition. Those who were interested got an invitation. Come to Albuquerque.
1: That was producer Susie Armitage. That meeting in New Mexico would become known as the Constitutional Convention of the National Cancer Survivorship Movement. We'll be back with that story after the break.
0: The Cancer Mavericks, A History of Survivorship, is a product of Offscript Media, the first podcast network and educational publisher focused on health equity and patient advocacy. Learn more about our growing network of podcasts and critically acclaimed docu-series at offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.
1: For Susie Lay, an oncology nurse in Arizona, The invitation to go to Albuquerque was a life-changing accident. Catherine had invited another oncology nurse in Phoenix, Debbie Boyle, who couldn't make it, and suggested Susie go in her place.
6: I remember saying to Debbie, oh my God, do you think they would let me come to this meeting? I can't think of anything more that I would want in my entire life than to go to a meeting of people with cancer.
1: She'd been diagnosed with Hodgkin's in her 20s, shortly after she returned from a tour of duty as an army nurse in Vietnam. Her end-of-service medical exam hadn't turned up anything unusual.
6: I was essentially told, go live your life, you know, you're out of the army.
1: Susie wasn't sure what she wanted to do next. She bought a Volkswagen bus and took some time to process what she'd been through and visit family.
6: And seven months later, I started coughing up some blood.
1: Eventually, she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's and traveled to Palo Alto, California for treatment at Stanford. It was one of the best places she could have landed. At the university, Dr. Henry Kaplan had pioneered the use of life-saving radiation delivered via a powerful linear accelerator. She got a full course of MOP, an acronym for four kinds of chemotherapy drugs and total nodal irradiation. The chemo would leave her infertile, a devastating side effect she learned about the same day the treatment was to begin. She cried for three days, struggling to process the news that she would never be able to bear children. We're going to cure you, the doctor said. What more do you want? After she finished radiation therapy, Susie was cured. But what did that mean? She was in her 20s and terrified her cancer might return.
6: And I remember saying, what can I do to keep this from coming back?
1: The doctors didn't have much advice to offer. They suggested she move to a bigger city, near a university, an urban area with have better resources in the still new field of oncology which barely existed in small towns like hers. Other than that...
6: I was actually told, well, you could take a multivitamin. I'm sure he just wanted to tell me something so that I had something to grab on. And I even said to him, what kind, what brand of a multivitamin? I mean, I was just going to, I was grasping for anything. And there just was nothing.
1: Susie recovered physically, but emotionally...
6: Emotionally... I was an anxious wreck.
1: And as she wrestled with the challenges of life as a cancer survivor, she found a new career as an oncology nurse. Caring for cancer survivors felt like a calling, but it also brought up a lot of strong emotions. Susie was giving chemo to patients with the same disease she'd had, and it was devastating when they didn't make it.
6: And it made me so sad, and I cried. and. The young docs there were just freaked out that I was so emotional that I shouldn't see patients.
1: The trauma took its toll, and it was difficult to be the only staff member who'd had cancer.
6: I was working with medical personnel who really did not understand what it was like to live with a history of cancer. And so um, I got pissed off because they didn't understand that I was still anxious and that it was okay to still be anxious because this really, really impacted my life in a major way. I went to some of my fellow oncology nurses and I say, how do you deal with this on a day-to-day basis? Well, we just don't take it home with us. You know, we leave it here at the office. And I say, yeah, but I can't. I was getting more and more uncomfortable with the idea that we were not supposed to feel the way that i was feeling and the only support network that i had at the time were my patients some of us got to be friends we'd go out for a drink and you know they'd say i want to talk to you about stuff that we're not able to talk about in the clinic like you know we're young people what do you do on a date when do you tell them that you had cancer do you tell them right away Or the idea of infertility and not being able to have kids. You know, so we had these kinds of discussions.
1: On the other side of the country, Barbara Hoffman was also searching for a community of advocates. She had been diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease in 1974 at the age of 15.
5: Back in the 70s, people stole thought, well, cancer could be contagious or it's always fatal. So when I was in high school, I really didn't talk about it with anybody because I was sort of coached not to do that. Um, So didn't have a lot of outlets or, or ways to process it. So it was very isolating.
1: Barbara grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and there was no cancer center there at the time. Like Susie, she traveled to Stanford so she could be treated by Henry Kaplan, the father of radiation oncology. After treatment, Barbara started college at Princeton. And soon, for the first time, she found a friend who'd had cancer. Another freshman student named Pete. He'd been diagnosed with Hodgkin's as a teen and treated at Stanford, too. They formed a bond. And it soon became very clear why Barbara had been told to stay quiet about her cancer.
5: His roommate's father was a physician who had read in some medical journal somewhere about the possibility that some cancers like Hodgkin's were uh, virus-based. And because of that, the possibility they could be contagious. The father had expressed his concerns that this cancer survivor should not be in a dorm with other young men. And they moved him to the infirmary and asked him to live in the infirmary (laughs) instead of a dorm.
1: Pete eventually convinced Princeton they were wrong. The school apologized, and he moved back into the dorms. But the experience showed Barbara that cancer discrimination was real, and the anger it sparked fueled her. She went on to attend law school, specializing in disability rights, and started researching employment discrimination. She saw patterns in how people with cancer were treated at work.
3: Dawn Stewart of Bloomfield, New Jersey, was replaced as an administrative assistant for a large company during her leave for treatment of breast cancer.
2: After Zelda Ainsberg got cancer, she got a letter from her employer at a major university. It said she was fired. New York City police spokesmen say it's department policy to reject cancer victims, period.
5: Employers assumed if you were diagnosed with cancer, Best case scenario, you're going to miss a lot of work or you're not going to be that great an employee. Worst case scenario, you're going to die anyway. Insurance providers would dramatically raise the rates on somebody who had cancer. So employers saw it in their financial interests to discriminate against employees who had cancer.
1: This was before the Americans with Disabilities Act. The landmark law signed in 1990 that prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities.
5: Most uh, cancer survivors did not have any either federal or state protection if they were treated differently solely because of their diagnosis.
1: By the mid-1980s, Barbara was an attorney at a small civil rights firm in Philadelphia. And she was searching for other people who wanted to change the system. And her boss gave her an opportunity to do just that.
5: He let me develop a project that we called then, would never call today, the Cancer Patients Employment Rights Project. This is 1986. No internet. We sent letters by typing them on typewriters or word processors. Carbon copies, right? Nobody knows what a carbon copy is today. I just started writing to people I had either read about or or heard on the radio who seemed to be interested in cancer survivorship issues. And that's how I connected with
1: Fitzhugh Mullen. Fitz told her a group of advocates was planning to meet in New Mexico.
5: I was chomping at the bit to go.
1: Finally, the big day arrived. 23 people from 11 states all over the country gathered at a hotel in Albuquerque in October of 1986.
5: Everybody had something different to bring to the table. We had oncology nurses like Susie, and that was a new thing at the time in college nurses. One or two other attorneys. There were physicians, there were community activists, you know, people everybody
6: brought their own little niche. It became very, very clear right up front who was going to lead us, and that was Fitz Hugh Mullen. I mean Fitz just took over. Fitz is probably one of the most charismatic people that I had ever met in my entire life.
1: The gathering was marked by a sense of urgency.
6: We did not leave each other's company (laughs) at
5: all, except for to go to sleep, get up and start again at seven in the morning. We just had a weekend. People were coming from all over the country. And communicating, being much more difficult in the pre-internet era, put a lot of pressure on, get this right now, and we're not going to walk away until we have a really solid game plan. So Fitz and Catherine were taskmasters. They kept us busy night and day. We certainly had meals together, but we worked through those meals. We had those giant pads of paper, you know, those like three by five foot pieces of paper. And Fitz and Kathy wrote on those things. So by the end of the weekend, they were everywhere. And if somebody had walked into that room would have thought this is just, you know, a completely trashed conference room. To us, it was a roadmap.
1: A big part of the work was coming up with new ways to talk about cancer.
5: We spent more time angsting over what words to use than probably any other topic, and we handled an enormous list of topics in one short weekend. And we went through every word you could think of, debated the pros and cons, and finally settled on Cancer Survivor, using Fitz's work as sort of the basis of that, his article very famous article, Seasons of Survival, talked about cancer as a continuum, right? It's not, you're diagnosed, you're treated, stop, right? You either cured or you died, it's stopped. That's not what anybody's life was like at all. We needed to change the lexicon of survivors so survivors were no longer treated as victims.
1: By the end of the weekend, the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship was born. Its charter proclaimed, from the moment of diagnosis and for the remainder of life, an individual diagnosed with cancer is a survivor. Heading home, the founders were fired up to reshape how society saw cancer survivors. And for many of them, the weekend had unlocked a whole new sense of confidence.
6: And it's like, I just didn't know what I had to contribute By the end of that two and a half days, I had so much in my head and in my soul that I went back to Tucson and, oh my God, I let it just rip. I let it flow. I was talking to people about cancer survivorship in a way that I never, never knew I could do. I didn't feel like I had a voice until I got with NCCS. I was a different person coming back from that two-and-a-half-day weekend. I mean, I went from saying nothing, hardly anything about anything, to you couldn't shut me up because I had people backing me up. I had people saying, yeah, you're, this is okay to feel this way.
1: It cannot be understated that the energy that came out of that meeting would transform the way society thinks about cancer. And they were just getting started. Next time on The Cancer Mavericks...
4: We are activists in an impassioned, embattled, and determined fight. We have created a new movement, a revolution to end this war. We demand access to quality care for all people and not the medically privileged. We demand an end to the politics of cancer.
1: The Cancer Mavericks... A History of Survivorship is a production of Offscript Media in partnership with Small Good Thing. The executive producer is Steve Liktai. Our senior producers are Susie Armitage, Mary Rose Madden, and Andrew McDowell. Our associate producers are Mariah Dennis and Mara Laser. And our production assistant is Sophia Curzius. Sound design and mixing is by David Schulman and our music is composed and performed by me, Matthew Zachary. For more information about this series, visit cancermavericks.com. That's cancermavericks.com.